This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, Central Floridians with ties to the country are speaking out. We're going to hear now from two people who have close connections to Ukraine and a deep understanding of the politics of the region. I spoke with Oksana Haggerty and Miroslav Shapovalov on Tuesday about the stress of watching the war from afar and what the next weeks and months may bring for Ukraine. Well, Dr. Miroslav Shapovalov is a lecturer in political science at the University of Central Florida. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Also joined by Dr. Oksana Haggerty, a professor of psychology at Beacon College. Dr. Haggerty, thank you as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Dr. Shapovalov, I wanted to start with you. Now, you co-authored a piece in the Washington Post a few years ago outlining the election of Vladimir Zelensky and how he was kind of a candidate who went against type a little bit. I wonder, just reflecting on that and, and, and what's unfolded over the last week with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what have you been thinking about and kind of reflecting on Zelensky, how he was elected and, and the character that he's revealed himself to be in the last week or so? Of course. So back in 2019, during the presidential elections, uh, Zelensky was not a likely candidate. The way the country's political system, electoral system worked uh, up until that point was that we could see clear regions and regional loyalties. Um, East would always vote for a candidate coming from one of the major towns and cities in the East. Uh, A Russian-speaking person in the West would go for someone from the... um, white-collar establishments of Kiev, Lviv, and uh, southern cities. And Zelensky just upset this system, because if you look at the um, first turnout, then the votes uh, for him, he gathered the majority of votes pretty much everywhere except the westernmost region of Lviv, which voted for Petro Poroshenko, who was the incumbent at the time. And... um, that was really amazing and new. I mean, our, myself and my colleagues working theory was that he was a very skilled populist at the time, which uh, let's be fair, he was. And uh, as he progressed in his term, this really became obvious and people started realizing that um, he may not be the best choice after all. He does not fully deliver on his promises. He has a lot of controversial policies he uh, is not uh, as strong of a character as Petro Poroshenko was. In 2019 and 2020, there was a lot of criticism regarding his attempts to negotiate with Putin over um, Donbass and the status of two breakaway um, territories uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts. But what we're seeing now is really quite remarkable. He is, according to some of my Ukrainian friends and contacts, uh, a true wartime leader. Some of the most uh, conservative and right-leaning acquaintances and contacts I have in Ukraine are now saying that they are proud to have a president like that. And uh, he has been doing a great job holding the fort and leading the country and making sure that the panic does not spread. It has been so remarkable that even his longtime political rival, Petro Poroshenko, returned to Kiev and is now making joint statements with him and uh, is contributing to the defense of the country and the capital. So it's truly a remarkable success and a lot of growth since uh, his selection and first political debut in 2019. Dr. Haggerty, I want to bring you into this conversation. You have a lot of family in Ukraine. First of all, how is your family doing as this war unfolds? I have all of my families back there. My parents are there. And uh, 
Um, I had two sisters, so their families are there all together, six nephews and nieces. So my sister is right outside of Kiev in a small town called Pilatserkva, which is White Church. Pilatserkva, very old, almost ancient Ukrainian city. And um, she has families, quite a few, four families in her house who fled Kiev and fled eastern part of Ukraine. So there are quite a few of them and including five children. One of them is a three months old baby. They are, um, they have air raids for the past two days, almost constantly, nonstop. And today when I called her, she told me we cannot take kids to the basement anymore. It's cold there. They, they, they are sick. We're sitting here in the corridor, which is the safest place in the house. And we're not going back to the basement anymore. So this is the reality of what of where they live and how they feel. And she has she told us today that she has no doubt that Ukraine will win, except she she doubts if they survive. This is this is the reality of it. She hasn't slept for I I would say five days since it's all started. And not because there is much to do. There's really you just sit in the house, you just cannot come down because um her husband is uh, away in a different city, and I, I don't even know if I can say that. I don't know. He's in a different city. He's in the police unit, and he has also a very positive outlook, saying that Ukraine is fighting, and he's very proud of the people, territorial defense units, because he, the police officer, he says that the help that is coming from them, their self-organization, their determination, their their loyalty is incredible and the help that he's receiving from those people is incredible. So he's very positive and he says that. And going back to our elections, if I could say something, this is probably the best example of what democratic elections can do. We may have different opinions about President Poroshenko, President Zelensky, and I personally didn't vote for President Zelensky, but he was democratically elected and the country is behind him, for better or for worse. We did have several democratic elections after the revolution in 2013-14. And the fact that Ukraine is fighting means that Ukraine as a country is a country that supports its government, elected its government, and doesn't see the government as something alien. And this is the presumption that Russians used when they came to Ukraine saying, oh, we will topple your government because you don't support it. No, guys, we did have several democratic elections and we do support our government good or bad. This is the advantage of democracy. And I can see it, and Ukrainians are really, really paying the price, a terrible price, to show it to the world. Mm-hmm. How are you doing then, Dr. Haggerty? It's, well, you know, it's like, how can you do? <laughs> how can you do? I, I, don't, I really don't know. It's checking the news, it's trying to do my work, just to make sure, because it's, I'm calling my family all the time and every time I'm I'm amazed that they are worried about me and trying to calm me down. And um, it's, I don't know. I don't know how you can do this situation, but thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask if you can give us a slightly higher level view. I mean, as a psychologist, what do you think about the this idea of having to watch something that is, you know, deeply personal to you and, and obviously very traumatic unfold and, basically you're you know it's thousands of miles away it's it's very hard to to do something about it so talk us through that if you could i um uh, i really at this point i think the understanding and 
the appreciation of these events will come later. You know, the only thing I can say, when my sister died of cancer 10 years ago, my middle sister, my one of the two, I remember going to bed at night. The next day was the funeral. And I was absolutely sure that the sun won't rise the next day because it cannot rise when a 30-year-old mother of three dies. And you just wake up and the sun is there and you have your coffee and you move on with your life. And this is how I feel right now. Every time I go to bed, I think the sun will not rise if, if Russia doesn't stop. But the sun rises and I have my coffee and I just move on. And this is how I feel about it right now. I wanted to ask too about the Russian connection in your family. And I'm sure there are, must be many, many folks who are going through this, whether they're in Ukraine or, or elsewhere in the world. I mean, the, the two countries are tied together pretty intimately and there's the Russian side of your family too. So can you talk a little bit about what sort of that means and how that dynamic is playing out? I have a lot of family in Russia because my mom is Russian. I have cousins, I have uncles, I have, I have many people. My parents received exactly one call and nothing else. I don't know if they're scared, they may be scared, they may be embarrassed. Or probably they just don't care. I, I, I do not know. I do not know. If I don't see them on the streets protesting, I won't accept anything else. Because this is the reality and we live in the 21st century and those who want to have information can have information. And only the people who choose not to have information don't have it. And it's shocking to me. It's truly shocking to me. My parents are shocked because they... They lived in the Soviet Union. They had friends. They had friends, not only family. They had friends from Russia. And nobody's calling. And again, I want to think that they're probably embarrassed, just like one of my relatives who called my parents, the only one. He just said, you know what? I really didn't know how I can call you and what I should say. And I want to think that they're not calling simply because it's too bad. But I, I cannot say at this point. Miroslav, um, a lot of your research focused on Ukraine's territorial defense unit, and obviously they are now a key part of um, defending Ukraine against the, the Russian invasion. Can you just talk a little bit about the research you did and how that informs you know, your impressions of what is happening now? So the research focused on the individual combatant motivations um, in the 2014 Russo-Ukrainian war. I was curious and quite frankly very impressed the first time I visited Ukraine on my own that um, people there had no difficulties risking their lives, volunteering, um, gathering supplies, crowdsourcing the entire Ukrainian army, uh, if you will. And it was quite easy, seemingly easy for them to abandon comfortable civilian lives and go and contribute to the greater good to the goal of defending and eventually liberating the currently occupied parts of the country. So um, I wanted to understand what kind of thought process, what kind of motivations are behind this? What is it that drives people so much? And um, as I started getting into the structure of um, Ukrainian defense wars, I realized that as much as there is um, the armed forces of Ukraine, the official part of this defense force, there is also um, there are also several volunteer battalions, the territorial defense battalions, which were at the time in 2014 semi-official, loosely organized, autonomous units with incredible unit cohesion, incredible combat readiness, incredible resolve. Those were 
small groups of people, often with very little um, military training and with very little supplies, some of which would date all the way back to World War One, who would take on assignments that the official military would consider to be too dangerous, who would enter cities whenever um, the Ukrainian military was on the way to liberate some of them from the separatist control. You probably know that urban fighting is the most dangerous kind of fighting in uh, a military conflict, including the one we're having today. And they would do this without questions because the very reason they were there was because they wanted to protect their country. They were not conscripted. They were not mobilized. They were not brought in against their will. They did not have any social welfare guarantees. They did not have any salary. And they just were there and they were ready to fight. And they did quite successfully. Uh, In fact, in the early months of 2014, the Ukrainian military was not quite ready. Uh, It was in shambles due to almost a decade of corrupt management. And these units were literally the only thing the country had at the time. And in four to five months, by the end of summer, they managed to push the separatists to the breaking point. And the situation was so bad that Russia had to forego plausible deniability and deploy regular troops in Ukraine and heavy artillery to support these separatist proxies. And this is how the situation had turned. Even then, though, it took them almost six months to um, push back and recapture the uh, territories the separatists held. So Ukrainians are very remarkable in that sense. And um, I think we can see this now. almost eight years later, because the army, the military is not the only fighting force in the country. And if you are trying to think about it this way, it is not necessarily going to give you correct information. You also need to think about the National Guard. You also need to think about the Ukrainian police. And you need to think about Ukrainian civilians, which after eight years of nonstop war, technically, there are thousands of Ukrainian civilians with some sort of military training and there are millions of people who are used to living in this uh, state of conflict and who are used to supporting the uh, military and the force fighting the russians or the separatists and i feel like this is going to be the decisive element in uh, what is going to unfold in the coming months you've also been reflecting on how belarus has been now drawn into this conflict i wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's going on there so since august 2020 um the Belarus regime of Alexander Lukashenko, who is the country's strongman, has been for more than 25 years now. The regime has been gravitating towards a closer alliance with Moscow and with Putin. This happened because of a significant popular mobilization and pushback against uh, his latest attempts to rate the elections in 2020 and a very popular and charismatic opposition candidate, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who is now uh, currently in exile in Lithuania. So what we're seeing now, this participation in this war and this aggression by Russia, is a form of a payback for the support that Vladimir Putin has um, offered Lukashenko in the past two years. And here we're talking about money and troops to make sure that his regime stays in power. In terms of the military developments and the military situation, what we're seeing right now is Russian troops and Russian Air Force using the infrastructure in Belarus to commence attacks. We have Russian artillery and, according to some reports, Belarusian artillery 
firing upon Ukrainian territory, including Kiev. We have Russian helicopters taking off from the territory of Belarus. And according to some of the reports floating around the internet, we are going to see Belarusian special forces trying to assault Kiev together with the Russians. Now, um, I myself am from Belarus, and I also have quite a few very close connections in Ukraine. My um, close family friends are now in Kharkiv, the city which has been bombed very heavily. And it is a pretty scary development and has been rather made worse yesterday um, because yesterday the country had a so-called constitutional referendum which amended the constitution to allow a semblance of legitimacy for the Lukashenko regime for the years to come. And it also removed the clause which prohibits the country from participating in any offensive wars, which means that now it's just going to escalate, except with, I should say, a pretense of lawfulness and legitimacy. There are plenty of folks, I think, in the United States who are watching this and saying they'd like to do something to help or offer some sort of support. Um, Oksana, what would you say to, to people here who say they want to do something to help? I would say, as a psychologist, I was worried that it will become just that theme that will go away to the back of our mind after a week or after two weeks. We just need to remember that this is a war in Europe. After two painful wars that started in Europe, and Putin now started a third painful war again in Europe, and we need to remember about that, and we should not stop until it's over in a sense until Russia just pulls back and, and, and does something to come back to the to the group of normal countries and normal people. Just just remember that this is going on and support Ukraine. And it's interesting you asked me about my Russian family. I didn't expect anything from them. I, I got hundreds of calls and emails from people here in the United States who only remotely know me so much support so much understanding so many questions what can we do what what it's just amazing how how really kind and caring you are you guys are and so i just wanted to say that just remember about it think about it and do what you can talk to your senators to your representatives and and just don't allow the world to forget don't allow the world to burn out because ukraine won't until we stop Putin, until it's over. And, and honestly, it's not now in our hands. It's not now in Ukrainian hands. It's in Putin's hands and the, the, of the world. It's not even Ukraine anymore. It's not about us. So just, we need to just be aware of the fact that this is not over and it's not going to be over. There will be no miracle. We all have to work together. Miroslav, uh, your thoughts on that? I mean, what would you say to people who, well, for a start, want to learn more about what's going on and be informed about it and then may be wanting to do something to help from afar? Well, I'm completely with Oksana on this one. Uh, with how many things constantly happen around the world, it's quite easy to forget about uh, the current developments in Ukraine um, and the atrocities Russia is committing there. So please don't. Please speak to your representatives, speak to your senators. Make sure they are keeping this on top of their agendas. Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting. 
this is one thing I really cannot imagine as a political scientist. And with my work there and the knowledge of the people currently in the trenches, even if the army somehow collapses, which I don't think it will, uh, Ukrainians are just going to keep fighting. What the world can help them with right now, and what I think to a degree Americans can also do, regular Americans, is to make sure they have the tools to keep fighting, to keep struggling against this onslaught. So with this in mind, there are plenty of opportunities to help Ukrainians in that sense. As for staying informed, major American news outlets have been doing a pretty good job covering uh, data developments. Associated Press is usually a good place to go to see what's going on there. I guess lastly, Twitter never sleeps never lets down. If you want to see facts on the ground, uh, first-hand, first-person accounts, go there. See what regular, ordinary Ukrainians are talking about, what they're going through, what they're seeing, and hopefully that will help us not burn out covering this situation. Well, I want to thank you both. Dr. Miroslav Shapovalov is a lecturer in political science at the University of Central Florida. Thanks so much for your time and your insights. Of course. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Oksana Haggerty is a professor of psychology at Beacon College. Thank you so much as well. And all the best to both of you and your your families and friends over in in, uh, Ukraine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Still to come, Florida's legislative session is nearing completion and a record-breaking budget could be sent to the governor's desk. Political commentators Dick Batchelor and Chris Carmody with analysis, plus reflections on CPAC when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The legislative session is set to wrap up next week. A record-setting budget could be headed for the governor's desk, along with a slate of bills on polarising issues like abortion restrictions. I spoke with political analyst Dick Batchelor and Chris Carmody about the session. We also talked about reactions from CPAC and where lawmakers stand on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, Chris Carmody is a shareholder at Gray Robinson and a Republican political analyst. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Also joined by Dick Batchelor, former Democratic state lawmaker and founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Dick, thanks as well. Good to be back. Well, first, I want to get your reactions from CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference held in Orlando over the weekend. The straw poll made it pretty clear who attendees want to see as their next president, Donald Trump. Chris, what does that tell you first about the Republican Party and how much weight should be placed on this poll? Well, good question, Matt. And I think it's one thing we should start with is while it was based in Orlando, CPAC is a national gathering of Republicans, conservative leaders, and, and those who engage in the process, especially in politics from across our country. So it's not surprising to me that the, the last Republican nominee, who is rumored to be the next Republican nominee, took a majority of the votes in a straw poll. Uh, Trump was the last person to be on the ballot in all 50 states as the Republican nominee. And, and this national gathering reflects that. I think the bigger story is that the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, uh, being that while he's well known and certainly because of COVID, uh, his, his name rose up in the ranks across the country, took almost 30 percent in this straw poll when he's just governor of one state. And, and so, uh, you know, I think it tells us two things. Trump is still the, the, the signal bearer for the party. And that makes sense. He was the nominee. Many folks think he didn't even lose that election. 
Um, and then you've got uh, Governor DeSantis, who's up and coming. And I think, if anything, the straw poll shows that um, he is the future of the party uh, beyond Trump. And so I think both are winners from this, but I'm not surprised by the results. Dick Batchelor, Ron DeSantis, as Chris mentioned, was pretty popular with attendees. I mean, does that does anything about what happened at CPAC change your assessment of DeSantis's presidential ambitions? Oh, not at all. I think what is interesting is uh, I think Chris made the points too, and who came in uh, Pompeo is like way behind, and even uh, Donald Trump Jr. was like at maybe three or four percent of the vote. So I thought that was very very interesting, but. Uh, I go with Chris. Obviously, this governor, while he's quote just the governor of the state of Florida, keep in mind before he was governor, he was on, he was in Congress, he was on Fox a lot. He's, and, and look at his legislative agenda: was the anti-Fauci, uh, we're not going to be uh, the whole anti-mask thing, uh, the whole critical race theory thing, the whole woke thing. Uh, all those issues are bundled around the red meat for the right wing part of the party, which is the kind of the Trump wing of the party. Now, one of the things he has to calculate, if not overcalculate, is how close does he say to Trump? How close does the Senate say to Trump? Does he basically get out front and say, I'm going to run against you, notwithstanding whether or not you get in the race, uh, or basically I could be your first choice of a running mate because I can deliver Florida again. So he's got some calculations. You you can't get too far out front because if you do, Donald Trump will prove he will throw you under the bus quickly. I wanted to ask too about the geopolitical situation because obviously while conservatives were gathering in Orlando, Russian forces began their invasion of Ukraine. We did hear some speakers weigh in, Marco Rubio, Mike Pompeo, Trump of course as well. Um, Chris Carmody, are you seeing a unified front from the Republicans on the US response to the war in Ukraine so far? Generally speaking, uh, you even heard Mitch, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell come out and give a, a, a soft but still a supportive statement of how President Biden has handled the response. You know, this is this is for Republicans, especially hardcore Republicans. It's it's tricky waters, uh, mainly because of the former president. Right. Uh, president Trump get, softened the view of Russia to many conservatives, given his his reach out to, to Putin. Um, but generally speaking, I haven't met many Republicans who haven't admonished uh, what Russian forces are doing in Ukraine. But I think many of these hardcore conservatives have struggled maybe a little bit because they're, well, they're viewing Putin as this guy that was reached out to by their, their leader, so to speak, Trump. And now, now they're questioning whether that's right or wrong. Um, but I think you're seeing as days go by, more and more Republicans unify around this message of what Russia has done is wrong. There needs to be swift action. Um, and then the question is, is whether that the action currently in place now is enough. And that's, I think, where the politics will start to creep in is did Biden do enough? Not enough. Should he do more? What have you? I think it was the late Senator Vandenberg who said all foreign policy should stop at, the, at, at our shores. In other words, implying that once we engage in a conflict, we need to have the American people support and politicians support that uh, conflict. Actually, it's a war of aggression. Uh, Russia going into Ukraine, number one. Number two, well, I agree that Senator Rubio and a few other senators have been very outspoken because of their experience in foreign policy. You get some Republicans like Senator, excuse me, like J.D. Vance, the author of uh, Hillbilly Elegies running for uh, 
Senate uh, Republican nomination in Ohio and courting Trump support, basically, so he doesn't care what happened in Ukraine. You got the Fox outlet, uh, Tucker Carlson, who should change his name to Neville Chamberlain because of the way he's invited in his propaganda's use to support uh, the aggression in Russia. So I agree with Chris that you've got some strong Republicans coming out and supporting uh, uh, the policy going in and doing all that we can to keep Russia out of Ukraine. But there are some, and again, I think in the extreme right wing of the party who just are not being supportive. Chris Carmody, any final takeaways from CPAC? Anything else kind of stand out to you that we should should mention here? I think the interesting takeaway is what wasn't at CPAC. And there was a lot of discussion of uh, some of the other more alt-right movements and gatherings that are taking place across the country that are, uh, I can't believe I'll say this, but more conservative than CPAC. Uh, and, and so the, you know, as, as the try true conservative myself, I, I never thought I'd say that, but yes, there are groups that, that can push the envelope of CPAC and that's, and that's frankly becoming a bit of a talking point within the party. And you're seeing, uh, the various groups pick sides, right? You've got, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman out of, uh, out of Georgia, who spoke at one of those groups that, that is a, a professed white nationalist group with very little pushback which is surprising, right? Uh, this is a white nationalist group and, and you would normally that would be something you wouldn't want to participate in, I would think. And she did it and kind of didn't really apologize much for it. Uh, so interesting. I think the big discussion there is CPAC is somehow getting outflanked on the right um, and, and they're, they're becoming the voice of moderation, even though I, I never thought I would uh, put CPAC in moderation in the same sentence. <laughs> Me, me either, Chris, but I, I think that's one you, you've opened up. I think it's what is one problem for Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be the next Speaker of the House. How do you bring in any, I'm going to call them moderate Republicans, and I'm using those in quotations, the more conservative ones, but then some of the fringe uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who might even oppose him being Speaker. How do you bring in those five or six uh vagabonds out there like Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene and get him into the fold. So I think with the vote maybe being close, uh, you've got to watch people like like her and Kevin McCarthy wanted to be the next Republican Speaker of the House. He's got to find a way to contend and bring in and rope, rope in some of these, uh, those of aberrant behavior. Hmm. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Chris Carmody and Dick Batchelor. We're talking about CPAC and the final weeks of the legislative session Back in January, we talked about the governor's agenda for the session, some of the bills up for discussion, for example, legislation to restrict abortion rights, redistricting, election security, nursing shortages, attempts to help Florida's struggling manatees. Chris Carmody, first of all, does it look like the governor is going to get pretty much all of what he wanted from this session? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, we, we saw a couple friction points over the last couple of weeks, mainly over congressional redistricting and as well on some water policy. On the water policy issue, it was, it was one of the, the Senate's appropriation um, conforming bills that were essentially going to change how some of the Lake Okeechobee discharges were treated and, and water levels, but the governor's office weighed in and some amendments were adopted. And if you, if you pay close attention, a lot of it was more about the hysteria and hype than it was about the policy. A lot of some some of the special interest groups were getting engaged, but when you looked at the details, it really there wasn't a lot there. But either way, the governor weighed in and it got fixed. On redistricting, as I think we've discussed before, the governor 
um, ha has taken the unprecedented step of, of submitting his own map for consideration. In fact, he's submitted two now. And, and most of this conversation revolves around uh, Congressional member Al Lawson, former state senator from Tallahassee. His seat stretches from Jacksonville to Tallahassee. The governor and his team have taken the position that that seat, because it's a more of a plurality minority access and not a majority minority access, that violates our constitution because it's not compact and it doesn't give majority minority access. And so he's re he's proposed some redrawing of seats that would essentially shape up two different minority access seats, but mainly uh, Congressman Lawson's. That has not been without its controversy for multiple reasons, right? Uh, you're, you're messing with a current member seat at, for a minority access seat, not to mention the House and Senate have for decades done this on their own and the governor would just weigh in and veto. Now we're seeing that the additional step of the House has two maps. They have the map they think is good enough, but a backup map if, it, if it's rejected, i.e. if the governor's plan with their kind of morphing in the governor's plan into theirs is rejected by the Supreme Court, they have a backup map. The governor's office, his spokesperson did not weigh in in support of that map, said that it still needed work. So this is the one thing that could cause us to go into a special session. Today is day 49 of the 60-day session as we're speaking. Um, and it's one of those, uh, this could end up in a special session or not. It, it's hard to say. And then I'll, I'll leave you with this and get into real constitutional minutia. There is a legal theory that if the governor vetoes the map, they don't have to overrule his veto or draw up a new map. It would just be left to the courts at that point, based on the way the Constitution handles both congressional reapportionment and state and House seat reapportionment. And that's an interesting wrinkle, right? Um, so the, the, the House and Senate could send a map that they maybe know is going to get rejected, either vetoed or disapproved by the courts, and then let the courts take care of it. Dick Batchelor, I wanted to ask you about some of the more controversial bills, like abortion restriction, for example. Uh, any surprises to you and how these discussions have played out? You know, how far these bills have gotten, for example? Uh, none at all. I mean, again, if you, we talked about it first, so a pre-session, and there's a whole national Republican agenda that they're trying to employ or implement in every state, whether it's voter restriction laws, abortion issue based on the Mississippi case in the Texas case, uh, president there, uh, the whole critical race. It's that whole agenda that's part of, part of the political optics, I would call it the Republican Party. You know, let's do some ordinary things that are fairly sane, but let's go ahead and go out here on the limb and do some things that appeal and reinforce the whole, uh, the right wing of the Republican Party. So I, I'm not surprised uh, by it by at all. I want to go back to something Chris said on reapportionment, and I, I agree when the Democrats are in charge of reapportionment, and I was in that case of, as a delegate uh, alternate member to the reapportionment committee. Of course, our job was to try to redraw the district lines of favorite Democrats getting reelected. Republicans are now in office and they're trying to do that. I think Chris makes a very good point, though, on the race issue and the minority access. Uh, keep in mind the old congressional district for Corinne Brown, the former congresswoman here, ran from Orlando all the way to Jacksonville, picking up primarily minority districts. And but reapportionment after that, subsequent to that, after the fair uh, fair amendments, uh, has a compact district now, which is uh, now occupied by Congresswoman Val Demings. There have, have been much uh, effort to dilute that, and I think because uh, Senator uh, Bracey, who's going to run for that seat, has a lot of influence in the in the process. 
But on the other hand, they will try to dilute and make more Republican Stephanie Murphy a seat because she's not running there again. So I, I think to the to the bottom line, I think if the court gets it, it's going to be fairer because of the uh, fair district amendments. And I also, notwithstanding the fact that this court is a very conservative court, they do have uh, constitutional presidents and case law to follow, as Chris had mentioned. So I think it going to the court is going to be the, probably the best resolution for the reapportionment matter. Dick Batchelor, are you seeing any kind of wins for the Democrats this legislative session? No, not really. And I said that at the beginning of the session. I mean, if you look at the makeup of the, of the House in particular, where they're all uh, voted almost two to one, uh, they're really, they're, they don't really have a, a strong agenda that they can advance anyway. Now, having said that, even though they're a minority, people have been very outspoken and locally, and uh, Escobani, who was always outspoken on these kind of issues, Carlos Smith has been outspoken on these issues, and other Democratic leaders around the state have been, but they've been rolled over on all of these issues and all their, uh, all the amendments. One thing that comes to mind, and I'd love to ask Chris uh, for his catch on this, I think, I think the budget between the House and Senate is about $2 billion apart or something. Would that throw you into overtime because you've got the, the 72-hour rule? Chris, some thoughts on that? Well, it's $3 billion to be exact. Uh, yeah, they're, they're a little far apart there. Now, some of this is in how you fund it. And I think from what I've been hearing uh, from the leaders on both sides, they're pretty close to done. They've, they've figured out how they're going to make some of this match up, right? And some of that's hospital funding. Some of that's K-12 through funding. Um, and then environmental and road funding. Uh, but yeah, they could go into overtime. So we're we're you know we're looking at March eighth. If the budget is not printed by March eighth uh, because of the seventy two hour constitutionally required cooling off period, they won't finish on time. So it needs to by eleven fifty nine p.m. March eighth need to be printed. If it if it isn't, um, then yeah, they're definitely going to go into some kind of overtime. What the sticking point is mostly is uh, some of those hot button issues, like what they call the dirty dozen, the 12 districts. And I, I'm not calling them that just for the record, but that is what's been referred to. The 12 school districts that required school mask <laughs> mandates on the students when it was considered illegal. They're talking about reallocating those funds. There's some funding for independent colleges that's at stake on reshifting how that funding formula is. And then, of course, like I mentioned, hospitals and university system is always in the crosshairs as far as Medicaid reimbursements and state university system payments. But I think they're going to find a way here. The big story is we are highly likely to have the first official budget well over $100 billion. Um, If you recall, last year after the vetoes, the governor, when he put his vetoes on, it was $99.9 billion. This one, unless unless there's draconian cuts, will be uh, well over $100 billion the way it's set up. But I think they work it out. I'm not hearing major differences on the budget right now between the two chambers, meaning major friction points. I think they're working through all the differences. So the Republicans with $100 billion and all the taxes spend liberals, I'm just confused by it all. But Easy there. They spend what, what is sent up to them from the property taxes and sales tax across the state. Some of it does come down from on high too, right? I mean, there is some federal money in there, I think, for them to spend. I, I was going to say, as, you, as Dick knows, and you know, Matthew, the, there is a lot of money that comes from the feds, both in the CARES Act money that they haven't fully spent. As a reminder, there's about $5 billion still floating out there that can be spent on that, on our budget this year. And as well, between Medicaid, higher education, K through 12, there is billions upon billions. I would say close to 60 billion of our budget is trust funds and federal dollars. And the top line revenue is closer to 30 to 40 billion. We are going to leave it there. Chris Carmody is a shareholder at Gray Robinson, Republican political analyst. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me. 
And Dick Batchelor, former Democratic state lawmaker and founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Dick, thanks as well. Thank you to my friend Chris Carmen to keep your head down for the last several days. Thank you, sir. I will. Up next, images of tanks rolling into Ukraine and refugees flooding out of the besieged nation are evoking memories of past conflicts, including World War II. Central Florida author Joni Sherm reflects on the historical parallels between the Russian invasion of Ukraine and wars of the last century and how responses to this crisis are different. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Images of tanks rolling into Ukraine and refugees flooding out of the besieged nation are evoking memories of past conflict, including World War II. Central Florida author Joni Sherm says there are striking parallels between the Russian invasion of Ukraine and wars of the last century. Joni Sherm is the author of Adventurers Against Their Will, extraordinary World War II stories of survival, escape and connection, unlike any others, and My Dear Boy, a World War II story of escape, exile and revelation, and her latest is Steadfast Inc. Discoveries from the Past with Understanding for Today. Joni, thanks again for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad to be here again with you, Matthew. So one thing that many commentators have noted is what we're seeing unfold in Ukraine today has some pretty grim echoes of the past, particularly World War II um, and, of course, more recent conflicts too. But I wonder what's going through your mind as you see what's happening in Ukraine and reflect on some of the stories that you've reported on from your own family and, you know, what came out of the Second World War and and the trauma that that unleashed? Uh, yes, for me, it's it's been difficult. I've really spent a lot of time in, with a great deal of sadness because as I see the stories of refugees, you know, fleeing from a country of 44 million, it's a very large country. And but I'm hearing the voices that are in the letters that my father saved. My father saved 400 World War II letters by 78 writers, 70 carbon copies of his own letters with lots of pictures and other things that really told the story of that era. So his story was escaping the Nazi-occupied lands that he was from as a young doctor and making it to China. And when I see what people go through, just like he, it was very difficult to leave uh, even in the earliest stages, that was in March 1939, when the Nazis had just occupied his country. And they wanted people, especially that were Jewish like him, to leave, but they made it very difficult for him to leave. And so even some of his documents were black market documents. So you see now these people struggling, you know, standing in lines and in cars, uh, waiting to just get into another country. Luckily this time, uh, Poland and other countries in Europe are, are sounding like they will really welcome them in. That was not happening at that time in 1939 around the world, especially for uh, Jewish uh, refugees. But so when he got to China is when he received a lot of letters from his friends who some of them were like him who had escaped to places like of Great Britain or South America, even some in China like him in the U.S., um, anywhere they could get to. And so they're writing like the people will soon be writing from Ukraine to other relatives, trying to describe the uncertainty, the difficulty, you know, whether they were welcomed or not, uh, how difficult it was for them to communicate with family at home. So we don't know how it's going to turn out clearly in Ukraine and how uh, much the regime of you know, Putin 
may take over and make it very difficult for those who stayed behind, either because they wanted to, you know, like my grandparents wanted to stay behind. They didn't want to burden anybody. They did, and they perished in the Holocaust, and, and so did 42 other relatives. So a lot of what I'm reading is just very, very much the same. Um, you could just take the letters and read them now and, and know that, uh, you know, the same pain, the, that same, you know, will to to go back to your country, to defend your country, all of those things are, are through these letters. So for me, it's very emotional, but I also think trends show in history. So we saw Crimea, just like we saw the Sudetenland uh, taken away from the Czech lands. Um, so in a very similar move, and you know, the Munich Agreement was kind of you know, ridiculous, you learn in history, because they thought that Hitler would stop there. Um, I think people hoped that Putin would stop with Crimea, but he showed no indication of that this whole time. Obviously, the war continued in another area of Ukraine. So I think we learn a lot, but I'm inspired by a different world this time around, you know, in the sense that they're standing up, you know, not just NATO and Europeans, but all over the world, and even individuals and uh, organizations and private sector doing the pieces that they can to fight propaganda or, you know, stop, you know, dealing with Russia in big ways. And so the economic pain they feel, I feel like maybe lasting in terms of not only impacting the Russian economy and the poor Russian people who I think have shown a lot of them, they don't want to be in war either. But I also think in the future when autocrats here and there decide they might want to do something, they suddenly are going to see this going on and maybe it will impact decisions in the future for a favorable don't go do something like this. When you, you talk about the stories that you've written about for your family escaping the Holocaust, I mean, you were talking about a trove of, of um, handwritten letters and of course, technology has changed. Now we're kind of sifting through social media. Things seem to be, you know, information is available in real time whereas before it may not have been so easily accessible. So in some ways, we're getting a lot of information all at once. And it's, I, I wonder that just kind of makes it a little maybe more challenging to, to pass in some ways. Yes, I think you're exactly right. I mean, when I see uh, social media the way it is, and I'm, I'm engaged um, even as an elder of the society, <laughs> pretty much, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere, and Facebook and everything, certainly we're learning things in real time that make us react and emotionally respond. And I think that all of that is very positive. Um, but I also think it's very frustrating because when you see now, you know, the military lining up the Russian military with 30 miles, I read, of tanks and other horrible devices, um, you know, we can't, we can't, we want to react uh, as a, you know, humanity. Um, but we can't, and it's frustrating. And I know that it's not an easy choice for what's going on in Ukraine for how NATO reacts. And I know these things are complicated, but somehow you feel like you just want to jump in and do more. And so I know I've donated to the United Nations, you know, refugee program and the International Red Cross, but that's about all you can do as a citizen watching in a very vivid way on the news 24 seven. How many echoes do you think people are seeing uh, in last century as to what's happening now? Like, I wonder just kind of how disconnected people might be from, from history and what the challenges might be around that. Well, I do feel like, you know, World War II and the letters that 
that I have are, you know, some of them are 80 years older, you know, old. So it's been a long time. Um, but I do think, you know, when you saw the original tanks and, and troops lining up at Ukraine's border, to me, it was really weird because I looked at those and I thought if they made them black and white photos, they looked very much like World War II. And the one thing I think that I'm seeing now that I'm very proud of because I go into classrooms and try to teach peace by looking at the past. And, you know, often people say history, we don't want a history to repeat itself, but I think trends of history are always true for <laughs> centuries to be able to see certain things that are unfolding and you have to act on them. But what I'm seeing are very dedicated um, social studies teachers um, that are a lot of them engaged in what's called the National Council of the Social Studies. And they are really using all these moments to teach real history in real relevant times, you know, with relevant tie-ins. And so I, you know, I kind of think as long as we don't see the trend for book banning continue and things that are kind of not are unsettling to me in, in our country right now. I think if you let the teachers teach using this moment, there will be a lot for teaching peace. I mean, that that can come out of this in the best ways for people to see how things unfold and what we need to change and, and how we need to react quicker. You know, things like the people that are caught up in the border. I mean, I feel like we should be flooding in, you know, the 82nd Airborne or somebody that can really help that checking of the papers if that's required, you know, in a crisis like this or something to move those people to places they don't have to stand in the snow and ice with their children. And, you know, that's appalling. So I think we need to be able to change the rules and act quicker in crisis like this. And it's not just there, it's in many places that we've seen in the world over the past two decades that I've been, almost two decades that I've been working on what I'm doing. I've been very, very uh, attuned to what's happening with refugees. Well, Joni Holtz-Ashirm, author of Adventurers Against Their Will, Extraordinary World War II Stories of Survival, Escape and Connection, unlike any others, My Dear Boy, A World War II Story of Escape, Exile and Revelation, and Steadfast Inc., Discoveries from the Past with Understanding for Today. Thanks so much for your time and your insights. Thank you very much. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners' editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Allegra Montesano. Find archived episodes of the show on our website, wmfe.org intersection, and download the podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.